Hi, I'm Louis Allport, and today I'm speaking with Richard Sylvester. And Richard leads meetings and also publishes books about non-duality. And today we're going to be speaking about his personal journey, so to speak, and how he how he communicates the ideas or, or his his perspective on non-duality these days, and why he chooses chooses to communicate it that way. And also some of the common questions and some of the common responses he he experiences from people at at meetings and by email and elsewhere. So, um, hi Richard, and thanks very much for for your time today. Hello, you're welcome. Okay, so I guess I'll keep my questions relatively brief, or my uh, my introduction to sections of this interview relatively brief. But would you say it's would you say it's true, accurate that, like many of us, um, or maybe most of us in different ways, you were looking for answers, and yeah, you, so you were looking for answers in some form. Is it would that would that be true? Oh yes, absolutely. I was a kind of classic seeker for probably you know thirty years or maybe more, uh, looking for <laughs> I don't know the secret of life enlightenment uh whatever there was always that there was that feeling that there was just something going on which clearly i didn't understand and there was the feeling that somewhere someone or some others did understand so yeah i was a classic seeker can i ask what age that started and was it initiated by anything in particular or was it did it i guess um maybe pop into your head at some point (laughs) No, I can give very precise answers to both of those questions. It started when, I would say it started when I was in my late 20s, and it was probably initiated by my first acid trip, which um, had a fairly staggering effect on my mind, my experience, whatever you want to call it. I sometimes um, compare that acid trip to a, you know, being kicked in the head by a mule, and uh, it, it, it's, it just kind of reve- seemed to reveal to me that reality as I experienced it was, you know, just one possible version of reality. Uh, and there might be many other possible rever- uh, uh, versions. So it just kind of got me interested in a whole looking at a whole range of possibilities I'd never looked at before. And then at a certain point after that, there's no clear um, cause cause and effect here, but I'm pretty sure there was one nevertheless. At some point after that, I found myself uh, paying a large sum of money over to the um, Transcendental Meditation Organization uh, to learn TM. Um, So that really was kind of the second thing that was a, a, a sort of revelation to me as well, that was. And after that, I was kind of up and running uh, down the, uh, the path of spirituality, I would say. Uh, so they happened at 29? Were, were you, was it in this country or were you, were you traveling? Or Well, I was just leading my um, a very ordinary life. I wasn't traveling exotically. I wasn't halfway up Himalaya. I was a lecturer in a London college. And um, 
it just I I, I mean there's, there's quite a lot of autobiographical detail I could go into but I won't I think I think uh, you know I, I was at a sort of fairly low point in my life um, I had a relationship breakup that sort of thing and um, somebody I knew one of my students actually was talking to me about transcendental meditation and one of the kind of things about that was that I know that a few years before that I'd had a conversation with someone where I was really mocking it. So I was very much not open at all and not available at all to um, those kind of ideas and those kind of practices. And then, as I say, there was this, um, you know, kick in the head from a mule from this acid trip and then a kind of descent into a certain amount of unhappiness. And then just the feeling like, well, this, okay, here's somebody talking to me about TM. It might just be the answer. I kind of went along and handed over a very large sum of money and I think some fruit and some flowers. I think that was also the scene, sort of feeling very foolish as I did so. And, um, I mean, before I was halfway into the initiation, I was pretty sure that, you know, I'd wasted my money and I was feeling very foolish. And, oh, what am I doing here? But then I actually started the practice and I was just one of those people that the practice sort of had an enormous um, effect on, which I couldn't deny. And um, after that, I think I was just hooked. I was looking a way out. I was looking as a, a way out of my misery, which is, I think, what, you know, brings many people to this kind of... Um, path let's call it uh i had kind of dabbled a little bit philosophically you know i'd read some buddhist books i'd read some stuff on zen i'd even tried a little bit of buddhist meditation on my own at home hadn't got anywhere with any of that it all seemed very dry and unproductive uh so obviously there was a you know you know a little bit of openness there already um before that but I, I, I would still say it's like the, you know, that, that TM initiation, it was like a revelation. Um, it really was like an initiation into a kind of the possibility of a different way of being. And so I became very enthusiastic about that. And that carried me on for some time, uh, even if things didn't seem to go well, um, I became a rather fanatical meditator, and even if I went through periods where I didn't seem to be getting anything from it, I still kept going because I'd been so infused by my um, kind of uh, my original response to it. And it's a complete mystery why that, you know, why that should be, because um, I also became a TM bore or, uh, to my friends. Um, after that because of course I started talking to them about it and encouraging them to learn it as well and a few of my friends did go off and they paid large sums of money as well and it didn't really take with any of them none of you know I just assumed everybody had the same effect that I had but it turned out not to be the case um, so they didn't feel they got much from it and they gave it up pretty quickly whereas I went on fairly fanatically i would say you know i i had to have my um meditation twice a day whatever the circumstances i went on quite fanatically um expecting that i would go on for a very very long time but then um unexpectedly i came across a guru and something inside me just went 
ah, this is now the one for you, Richard. So um, having been incredibly keen on transcendental meditation, I then abandoned it after about, probably after about three years, I abandoned it rather abruptly and um, went off um, dancing, as it were, with these uh, other meditation techniques from this um, very charismatic guru. Okay. So um, so you started with the TM introductory course, if that's right, which is, I think, a few weeks, and then twice a day for three years. Was it tw- twice a day for 20 minutes a day? Is that right? Or is it going to be any length of time? Yeah, oh, absolutely not. You have to follow the rules very carefully. <laughs> twice a day, 20 minutes a time, and I was going off on... TM retreats, I can't remember how long, maybe a week or a couple of weeks at a time. Um, I did what uh, what they call their Science of Creative Intelligence course as well, uh, which is kind of a sort of induction. I suppose it's in, an induction into yogic philosophy, but yogic philosophy masquerading as science. Or perhaps the other way around, perhaps it's science masquerading as yogic philosophy, I'm not sure. Um, so I was uh, I was very enthusiastic. I put a lot of energy into it. I even thought about training to become a TM teacher, and uh, then that kind of, in its turn, sudden suddenly fell apart when I heard about this guru. And rather ironically, I heard about the guru when I was actually on a TM retreat, and the conversation I overheard was between two much more experienced TMers than I was, and they were actually talking about how awful this guru was and how dangerous and how no no one must ever go near him. Uh, But there was something about what they said. I just, I don't know what happened. This energy came up in me, and I just thought, I've got to go and see this, this man. I was living in London, so I had plenty of opportunity to go and, frolic amongst spiritual things if I wanted to um you know and I had kind of looked into various other things you know I'd gone to the first festivals for a mind body and spirit I think they were at Earl's Court you know huge affairs and so forth but um there's something I I something about something that was said about this um this new guru who'd come on the scene fairly recently uh, I just can't explain it, but I think, you know, I think a lot of people um, with histories in the spiritual world will have had similar experiences, that just energies suddenly erupt to do certain things, and so that's what happened with me. So did you suddenly lose interest in TM, or did it just stop working? It certainly didn't stop working, the, the practice. No, I was still meditating, but I lost interest in it as an organization. I lost any interest that I had in training to be a teacher, and I couldn't wait to scamper off and learn new meditation techniques from, um, from, from this new guru. I did, you know, I went and learned them, and they were, they were very, I mean, they're very similar to TM in a way, um, you know, the, 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 the practices were not, you know, not a million miles apart from TA, but I found them, you know, incredibly effective. And I sort of fell in love with this new organization. It, it, was, a very, it was a very new organization. And one of the things that hooked me was because it was new, 
it was creating opportunities for people to train as teachers in a very simple way. And I'd already been thinking, I think quite insanely, I'd been thinking of giving up my very well-paid, very interesting professional job and going off to Switzerland to train as a TM teacher. I think it would have been a complete disaster if I had done. And suddenly, here I am in this new organisation, and they're offering me the chance to train as a teacher um, at, um, you know, very little um, cost to myself. I mean, by cost, I mean very little effort. In other words, I didn't have to give up my job. I didn't have to go to a, another country to do it. I could just go on living my um, normal life. But I could add on to that as an adjunct, as it were. You know, I could um, become a teacher for this new organisation. That suited me down to the ground, and I, I loved the techniques. Um, you know, I, I, I thoroughly believed in them. Yeah, I thought they, you know, could bring huge benefits to people. So the you say the technique was fairly similar to TM in some ways. Well, um, yes, they had a they had um, a, a mantra meditation technique which was quite similar to TM, but they also had other techniques as well uh, to add on to that, which uh, <laughs> that was exciting for a seeker. So uh, they also taught um, Tratak, a candle meditation, which also was a lovely technique. And then later on, uh, they taught a mandala meditation, which was also lovely. And in groups on retreats, we um, chanted a lot and meditated to a huge Tibetan sound of a huge Tibetan gong. It was, all, it was all lovely, but the techniques, you know, for me, again, they just seemed to, not always, but sometimes, you know, take me to very deep places. So I was, I was very happy with this, and I was sort of also, you know, I now had a little position in the organization, because first I was a teacher, and then I became a senior teacher. So, um, so it was all going very well. You know, I was um, very, very happy. And just to add to that, I suppose I should throw it at this moment, uh, that we also happened to believe that our guru was the avatar of the new age, which made it very exciting indeed. Now, anybody who, anybody of my age who took an interest in such thing would probably know immediately that around that time there were at least three or four or maybe five or six or more gurus who were being presented by their devotees as the avatar, the one and only avatar of the new age. But of course, you know, we, we knew, we knew that we had the authentic one and everybody else was mistaken about theirs. It was, a, you know, a little bit like, um, you know, being a, a religious convert of considerable, you know, with considerable zeal whilst continuing my day-to-day -day life and my profession and so forth. Yes, and, 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 and even better, the guru would come over to England in the college holidays to run retreats, so I would go on those, so I didn't have to kind of sell everything I owned and walk up a mountain in the Himalayas in order to sit at his feet. So I could go and sit at his feet in a comfortable hall at the University of Kiel in the summer holidays instead. So it was kind of, you know, sort of path for... Um, devoted devotees, but quite lazy devotees as well. Okay. Um, we so didn't, how, didn't okay. even have to become vegetarian, which was wonderful. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, so I'm mentioning that because at a certain point in this story, I was offered the chance of being initiated by a much more um, traditional Indian guru. Um, but I was told almost at the last minute that I'd have to become a vegetarian, so I decided against that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Kamar, how long were you involved with that? Now then, um, <laughs> I have to work this out. It wasn't very long. Um, I think, hang on, uh, my best guess is about three years. It could have been a bit longer. Um, and then they, the whole thing just came crashing down. There was an almighty scandal, as there often is with such groups, and the whole thing just just literally collapsed in a very short period of time. Did you feel a little bit adrift at that point, or what? what no. I guess. No, no, I felt absolutely and totally adrift. I felt completely adrift. It was a, a horrible experience. No, it was uh, because you know for 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 two or three. I think. I think at least three years it was, you know, we'd invested, you know, so much love and energy into this adventure. And of course, you know, by, by then a lot of my social contacts, my friends and so forth were members of this group. It was a, you know, a large and seemingly very functional um, family um, and very fulfilling in all sorts of ways. And then one hideous evening it all came crashing down it was a terrible terrible shock it took a long time to recover from that so i guess when that happened did you were you continuing with meditation or did you stop everything or were you looking for something else or <laughs> well i stopped teaching for the guru uh, i stopped teaching meditation um i left the organization well what little bit of the, org the organization was left i mean most people most of the teachers left but a few carried on so um, you know the, the the organization did go on but in a much smaller way um but um and i never really joined a, an organization after that i never really committed to any teacher or organization after that but i went on meditating and I kept that up for many years, many, many years. So could you describe the years, or the months or years after that, and I guess what, I guess what happened and where did you end up? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I could do the 30-second version of that or the four- or five-hour version of it. Let me try and think of something in between. Um, okay. Yeah, um... I, I mean, I went on seeking, I suppose, in the sense that I did look into other teachers. I did look into other organizations. I flirted with at least three or four different forms of Buddhism, different schools. Um, but um, it, it's the, one of the ways I put it, it's almost like, you know, that guru experience gave me an inoculation against gurus and teachers in the future so after that i just nothing in me ever wanted to commit to a particular um teacher a particular human being or a particular path after that so i went on doing you know a daily practice um i think doing a daily practice whatever it, you know i think doing a daily practice is quite a good idea for all sorts of reasons so I went on doing a daily practice, um, and I went on, I'm going to use the word investigating, 
by hanging out in various groups, um, going on a few retreats and things like that, but nothing of that nature ever really stuck with me again. But the, the main thing that happened after that was that I then became very interested in kind of what I would call Western psychotherapeutic paths rather than Eastern spiritual paths. So I started um, taking retreats, um, going on courses, that sort of thing in the Western psychotherapeutic schools and techniques. But And I did a wide range of those, but I was always mostly attracted to the ones that had a what well, I you know what might be called a transpersonal element so even there as I got more and more into the western paths it was the ones with more openness to spiritual paths and I spent a few years uh, well one or two possibly three I can't really remember again but a few years um, doing some trainings in some very very heavy um, encounter-style psychotherapeutic paths, um, you know, the sort of thing that had come over here from the Esalen Institute and Big Sur in America, and they were, um, well, they were pretty kamikaze in a way. Once you'd entered the hall and signed your agreement and signed away your rights as a human being, you never quite knew to what extent you might get beaten up and battered and battered psychologically but i found all of that very exciting and useful and fulfilling so i did that for a while and i was i was actually involved with an organization which only existed for a short period of time but again i think it was a wonderful organization at the time because it took these um very very confrontative kind of you know western group um psychotherapeutic encounter techniques and it combined them with a sort of spiritual approach and with meditation and uh, for me uh, that was very powerful um for and again um that i suppose that went on for can't really remember maybe two three maybe four years yeah and then after that i kind of got into using this stuff professionally myself because I worked in uh, education, I worked in colleges, I got opportunities to start kind of um, teaching um, both in the counselling, you know, the kind of psychological and counselling fields, and also a little bit in the spiritual fields as well. So I was sort of introducing meditation courses and things like that into, um, you know, into my teaching work. So those few years you felt they gave you some... They were beneficially uh, sort of mentally or emotionally in some ways? Absolutely. That's very strongly what I felt at the time, yeah. If you don't mind me just coming back to this, I'm just tracking it. Um, I'm just trying to track this on a age basis because I think it's, well, it's interesting to me and maybe interesting to other people. So it started at 29. You said um, three, month, uh, three, years in t- three, three years in TM, three years with a guru, a few years of this. So this takes us to maybe... 40 early 40s is that right yeah that sounds about right yes <laughs> yes <laughs> okay um so i maybe one question is why were you or what were you still looking for specifically or and why or did you have i guess 
a feeling of dissatisfaction or you felt this this isn't it this isn't it and you were kind of looking around the corner for something else or yes i think that that's a good way of putting it i think you know it's probably fairly obvious from everything i've described so far that i was very much um kind of uh, on a progressive path you know i believed in the progressive path i mean the fact is obviously by now i didn't see myself as being on any one specific path but nevertheless that was also in the spirits of the time because you know we'd become very eclectic by then so this is what a lot of us were doing you know we were going to one guru here and another guru there and trying this technique maybe for a year or two and a different technique for a, another year or two and combining this bit of buddhism with that bit of yogic philosophy with perhaps a bit of christianity or something like that so it was very much um, i mean a, a, a phrase that's been used for this approach and it's used derogatorily it's a pick and mix culture but i don't take that as derogatory at all i think that's an incredibly sensible thing to do and even if it isn't sensible it can be fun and entertaining uh so um i embrace that kind of pick and mix approach um and i have no regrets about that uh but the other part of um what you said the other part of your question yes underlying that definitely there was um, still that feeling which I think was summed up by quite a few people in the phrase, this isn't it, you know, so I was still searching. I didn't know what the hell I was searching for, but the one thing I knew was that this isn't it. This wasn't it. I hadn't found it. I didn't know what, what it was I was looking for, but I did know I hadn't found it. So in other words, there was that kind of underlying sense of dissatisfaction, um unhappiness lack however we want to put it which is a kind of common cause for keeping us seeking well obviously dissatisfaction is probably true for everyone in life but yeah for seekers i guess as you as you say it's meant to be or many of us think about it if not most of us think about it as a progressive something progressive as in this this step then this step and then this step and i'm getting somewhere and um but you know we're not quite there yet to so do something else. Not quite there yet. Do something else. And yeah, I know. I'm. I'm sure. I, well, I'm very sure. I've been guilty of that. If not, continue to be guilty of that. And people I know, and that is probably just part of being <laughs> part of being human. You know, I think it's it's the human condition. And I mean, in some ways, it you know it it, it can lay us open to very interesting and very exciting and colourful experiences. <laughs> but it is absolutely yes, it is absolutely the human condition. Of course, yeah. Like what? So what? Like what was the next? What happened beyond that? Um, so you were going, you were going to, you were taking part in this, and you had this sense of dis, dis, dissatisfaction, or this isn't it. So wh- where did that lead you? I mean, either consciously or unconsciously, where, where, where did that lead you to? Well, <laughs> there, there was a kind of bizarre coincidence or synchronicity one day. Um, uh, 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 at some point in all of this, I got invited to a meeting of um, Tony Parsons. Um, this was a long time ago, and he was, hold- he was holding his meetings in uh, the house of um, some people I knew and I had contact. So I got invited to this meeting, and I went along and I listened to him. I mean, I, you know, I liked 
you know, I liked Tony as a person, but I wasn't remotely interested in what he said, partly because I think I don't understand, I didn't really understand much, if anything, of what he said, you know, um, met a few nice people, had a cup of tea and a cake, went home and thought, well, I don't, don't want to go back to that again, but, you know, it was a nice afternoon out. And then at some point after that, and again, I couldn't tell you when, it could have been a year later, it could have been two years later, I have no idea. There was a bit of a bizarre, um, again, coincidence or synchronicity, and without kind of boring you with the details of that, what happened was that two different people who did not know each other both invited me to another Tony Parsons meeting within about three days of each other you know one of them said oh you're probably not interested but tony's giving a meeting in hampstead on saturday it'd be nice if you you know felt like coming and i thought to myself well yeah i certainly won't feel like coming and then literally you know two or three days later i was um with another group of people and talking to somebody i hadn't met before and she just she was just talking about tony and she mentioned the same thing. She said, oh, well, why, there's a meeting on Saturday. Why don't you come along? And the hook for me at that point in what she said was that she made it clear, unlike the first person, that there was that there'd probably be a fun group of people who'd go over to the cafe bar afterwards and they'd sit around and they'd drink and chat. And, you know, she made it like sound like quite a nice social occasion. So I thought, oh, well, why not? So you know i found my feet one you know taking me up the hill uh in hampstead to um you know another you know a second tony's meeting the meeting that i thought i would never want to go to again and i i cannot explain it um i sat through the meeting i still probably understood almost nothing of what was being said but this time there was something about it that just got me you know it hooked me um and there was a nice group of people that went over to the bar cafe afterwards and sat around and drank and had pleasant conversation so the combination of those two things just made me want to go back so uh there i was uh um, month after month my feet were walking themselves up east street in hampstead uh to um to listen to tony and to um drink with a nice bunch of people afterwards and as time went by i don't know i wouldn't really say that i understood much but as time went by perhaps i began to understand just enough to start asking questions so i went through a period of remorselessly asking question after question after question i must have been a, a complete pain actually um, I'm sure there were people in that audience sitting there thinking, oh, God, I wish he'd shut up. So I answered, I asked question after question, many of them about death, I remember, for some particular, I don't know, for some reason, I particularly wanted answers to questions about death. Uh, so that was the next thing that happened, yeah. I got hooked. I got hooked on non-duality. Uh, when you say you got hooked, was it, would you... <laughs> Did it manifest a sort of mental curiosity or was it something else or did you just find yourself attracted to it but you weren't entirely sure why? Um, probably all of that. There was, there was definitely mental curiosity, obviously, you know, from the, you know, the number of questions I was 
um, asking. I was, I, I, there was definitely something about the energy, and I mean, please don't ask me to define what I mean by that word, but it'll just have to do. There was definitely something about the energy which I liked, and it was a nice bunch of people. There was something about the social aspects of it I liked. And then you see, I mean, I remember I'd been a, I'd been a quite an important person in the gurus um, movement. Um, I think we had 20 senior teachers in this country and I was one of them. I mean, what a wonderful position. I mean, I'd lost all that. I'd just become a kind of spiritual nobody um, anymore. And here I was back sort of, you know, with a nice bunch of people. And then I was offered this position as um, assistant tea boy. So that really kind of, <laughs> that really locked me into it. So there I was. I liked the energy. I liked the questioning and the answers. I liked the people. They seemed to be a very amiable. There seemed to be a, uh, I think this is important, actually. There seemed to be a real, yeah, this is just occurring to me. There seemed to be a real kind of, air of um, freedom and permission and even permissiveness around this because you know i'd spent a lot of time hanging around spiritual organizations and there's, a, there's an awful you know there's you know there's a kind of lot of morality and virtue and even moralism and um kind of assumptions about sticking to rules and disapproval of the breaking of rules. I mean, you know, a lot of spiritual organizations can be quite uptight, and some spiritual organizations can be unbelievably uptight, almost neo-fascist. I shall probably regret using that term, but never mind. Um, and there was, uh, there was just like a, just this sort of feeling of relief and relaxation, uh, just some just such freedom um you know around you know hanging around these meetings and as i say then i was enticed in with this you know magnificent opportunity to become an assistant tea pourer so then i was sort of part of the crew then so i really couldn't leave after that so there i was yeah Obviously, obviously, it will sound as if I'm making light of this. In a way, I am deliberately because there was a lightness about it, and that's part of what was so attractive. Because you know, spiritual seeking can be so damned heavy, so damned serious, and my God, if you put a foot wrong, then you might be cursed with you know thirty extra incarnations and so on. Um, and it was just delightful to you know not to have that. I remember reading an article years ago by, I think her name's Marina Warner, and it was in some enlightenment or spiritual magazine, and it just seemed so heavy to me. It just seemed to be suggesting that almost everything that we did as seekers was wrong. You know, it was wrong, 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 everything. You couldn't kind of move without putting a foot wrong, so you'd better find yourself, you know, that 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 wonderful... I don't know, that wonderful Buddhist monk or whoever it might be, you know, the Buddhist saint or whatever, because without that, everything you were doing, you were just kind of deceiving yourself, fooling yourself, you know, spiritual stupidity was rife everywhere. And I, 
I really hated that. I really kind of revolted against it. In fact, I even wrote a letter to the um, to the magazine saying that I smelt the whiff of spiritual fascism from this article. Uh, and to be around this um, atmosphere around Tony and enhance it, with none of that, absolutely none of that. It just felt wonderfully freeing. Later on, I came across a um, uh, a few words about Advaita that I hadn't met at that time. I can't remember who wrote or said them, but it was there's something of the breath of freedom blowing through Advaita. And as soon as I read those words, I just thought, yes, absolutely. That's kind of something that on some level, without knowing it, but on some level, that's part of what I recognized when I um, became hooked on those uh, meetings in Hampstead. It's the breath of freedom. No rules, no guidance, no path, no techniques, just freedom. I can't, I can't explain it, and I don't think there's any point in trying to explain it rationally, you know, that how something about it hooked me. You know, there were obviously things about it that I liked, which I can rationalise and have done. You know, I like the people, I like the socialising, quite a lot of laughter as well, and I like that and the informality. But obviously, you know, something above and beyond that, which is, um, you know, can't be put into words, it can't be put into thought. Uh, I could just say, I could just use the word an energy, which is almost meaningless, but that's about as far as I could go. Something about the energy of it just really hooked me, and I just wanted more of that. You know, I think in a, in a way there's a, something slightly significant about the fact that, that that energy, you know, I wanted more of that, even though on a mind level I didn't really understand very much of what was going on. You know Ramana Maharshi's phrase, it's a very famous phrase, um, your head is in the tiger's mouth. I think that's probably the best way that I can put it, that for, for some reason or no reason, and certainly inexplicably, that second time that I went back and then got hooked, you know, my head was in the tiger's mouth. Um, so how did the years after that take shape? <laughs> um... The reason I'm hesitating is because this is the point at which language breaks down, but we have to use language if it's so inadequate. So, um, I mean, oh God, these are meaningless terms, but what I would, well, what I would say is that after, I think, I think as I remember, I think after a year, yeah, I think after a year there was a kind of, I'm going to use the, the phrase partial breakthrough because that's the sort of maybe the conventional way of uh, describing something like this. I think anybody, many people have, um, will know what I'm talking about, and the word breakthrough maybe isn't that appropriate in a way, but there was a kind of partial breakthrough into, ah, yeah, this is, this is what this is all about. Uh, so in a, it began to make sense, and when I say it began to make sense, I don't necessarily mean intellectually. It just made, began to make sense on a kind of total level, you know, the mind, body, spirit level, whatever you want to call it. Of course, these words, you know, begin to become redundant when we're talking about advisor. Uh, and then, again, I think another year after that, and then there was another breakthrough, and then it was kind of, oh, yeah, that's it, that's 
that's all it is. This is what this is what's been puzzling me the whole time I've been coming up to Hampstead, but it's actually what's been puzzling me all my life. Certainly it's what's been puzzling me ever since I kind of became consciously involved in spiritual matters, you know, when I started, you know, TM or even before that when I started reading Buddhist texts and Ram Das and people like that. Oh yeah, this is what it's all about. Oh Christ, isn't it simple? So, yeah, there were those kind of two breakthroughs. And then, you know, and s some people listening to this I know will absolutely know what I mean by this. Maybe others won't. Uh, then it was all over. It's just over. It's game over. You know, there's just nothing left after that, uh, except for life happening. So that's, uh, I guess, we've got to the point where oh, you may be starting to, I'm sure you find this in meetings and also in your books, is you're explaining things which people might have a strong reaction to or don't understand at all, or they just they they just get confused and, I don't know, maybe they stay interested, maybe they don't stay interested. So from what you've just said, how, how have you found a good way to communicate it or, or, or attempt to communicate it in a way that people can access? Or, um, yeah, if that's, if, that's, if that's a coherent question. <laughs> Yeah, it's a coherent question. I don't know if I can answer it in the way that um, you put it, which isn't a criticism of the question at all. Um, let, let me try this way. I mean, I mean, some people, it's kind of, you know, it's all over with them, um, but they, there isn't an urge in them to communicate it to other people. You know, they just don't have that kind of personality. So whatever, they go off and continue to be a sheep farmer or, a, a you know, a bus driver or whatever it might be. But, you know, I had always been professionally, I'd always been a communicator. You know, I have that kind of um, personality or energy or whatever. I was a lecturer all my professional life. So it was kind of pretty natural for me to want to both write about this and talk about it. It's just my you know, it's just my my nature, if you like, my personality. It would have felt a bit strange to me not to do that because, you know, all through my life, whenever I've had an enthusiasm for something, I kind of wanted to communicate it. And I was lucky to have been able to earn my living in a profession where I was able to do that. So whether it was Shakespearean tragedy or non-duality, you know, it's just natural for me to want to write, want to give talks, want to answer questions. So that's what I started doing. But for me, the question would have rather been, it would have been, well, if I hadn't done that, why would I not have been doing that when my whole personality kind of leans to that you know, to that kind of process, communicating about the things I'm interested in to other people. What what you do with meetings and through books is you share your perspective. Would you say that's right? Um, I'm slightly reluctant to concur that it's my perspective. Although obviously, in a sense, it is because I have a certain character. And so, you know, I share in the way in which that character is constructed. I, I think I just try to, I try to share um, hopelessly, because it's always hopeless, this sharing, an understanding of this, a feel for this. Uh, that's all I can say, yeah. I don't think I 
have a perspective. Uh, as I'm saying that, I can hear cries of outrage possibly from some people, and maybe those cries of outrage might be justified. I don't know, but I, I don't... I don't know that I have a perspective. I'm just trying to communicate, you know, that which cannot be communicated. <laughs> um, um, it was Alan Watts, I think, wasn't it? Alan Watts said he was trying to F the ineffable, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to F the ineffable. Okay. Because what you've just said, um, I know in people who are new to this topic or familiar with this topic or mildly interested this is where they often have a lot of confusion or strong reactions. And yeah, this is often where people seem to get lost. I mean, as you say, from your, from in your, in your journey, even though you were confused, you stayed interested because something was taking you back. And maybe that's, maybe that's a similar sort of feeling or similar sort of motivation. However, whatever that may be is what gets a lot of people over this stage of being utterly confused and maybe even having being having quite strong feelings about it because I've seen people get very I've seen people angry or upset about what Tony says for example because it does, or and I'm sure that's I think that's happened to you as well I remember actually one of your YouTube videos you mentioned you've had strong reactions as well I guess it can come across as nihilistic or fatalistic or you ultimately it's there's no hope and you know personalities or human beings in, well almost invariably have a strong reaction to that yes i think there's little i can say about that other than yes it can sound nihilistic and it absolutely isn't it's a million miles from nihilism it can sound solipsistic and it isn't it's a million miles from solipsism um and certainly i think the things that people have the strongest reactions to as the suggestion you know as soon as we tread on the thin ice of free will people tend to have very very strong reactions to that people do not like having even the concept of free will challenged and certain number of people get very angry about that and of course you know the um the non-existent the non-existence of the self um, that's the other thing that can get people quite agitated. Um, my own uh, way of dealing with that is to try to te talk about this as little as possible unless it's to a group of people who I know are interested in it. So if my sort of friends or somebody in a pub sort of started asking me what it is I give talks on, I, I tend to become extremely evasive <laughs> and try not to tell them. I become as vague as possible because, in my experience, it's just it's, it's both it's it's futile and also it can be quite aggravating to have a conversation with somebody about this. You, you know, they they have you know all they want to. You know, they don't. They have no feel for what it's about, no desire to know what it's about, but they do want to have a fight with you about the idea that there's no self or that there's no free will. Um, so yeah, I just find it's, it's, it's best to avoid those situations. Uh, by the way, I've talked to and had emails from a lot of other people who've experienced the same thing. You know, they, um, when people get into non-duality, there can be a period of excessive enthusiasm where they want to talk to all their friends about it. And quite often they discover very quickly that's not a great thing to do. You know, I don't give advice, but if I did give advice, I'd say, oh, you know, 
if, if, if you know, just be evasive, be as evasive as possible. If one of your friends wants to know what you're doing on the first Saturday of the month, um, but you know, in, in, unless you get a sense that they really are genuinely interested and might have a feel for it, they just be as evasive as possible. I had um, somebody who used to come to my meetings very regularly. Um, you know, used to, well, I, let's not be polite about it, used to frankly have to lie to their partner about where they were going. Um, and they were not the only person that I've heard that from. <laughs> and I remember having a conversation with them one day, and basically the feeling seemed to be that it would have been more okay if they'd been going to a brothel or an opium den or a casino than if they were going to a non-duality tour. The other thing I say is, well, it's kind of a bit like Buddhism, but not quite, and that usually shuts people up. I was just going to say, one of the most terrifying sentences anyone can say to me is, if it's a friend of mine, and they say to me, oh, I'm going to come along to one of your meetings um, soon, Richard. Um, that's a, I don't want to hear that, not from a friend. Well, I mean, if it's a friend who's interested in non-duality, yes, but, it, you, you know, it usually isn't. And yes, of course, that idea that I don't have control over something called my life. It is an absolute insult to the ego. It's a terrible thing to say to the ego. Even worse than that, I wouldn't say that there's a you in control of your actions. That's what people hear, and that's why people say, you know, the average person in the pub is probably so ready to fight me or anybody else who says that because that's what they hear. What they hear is there's a you there, but it's helpless. Um, it has no control or whatever. That's not really what's being said. I mean, what's being said is not there's a you, but it has no control. What's being said is there is no control. Control is irrelevant because there is no you. I mean, that might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but believe me, I'm not. There's a, there's a, a zillion miles between the suggestion that you exist, but you're powerless which is not what I'm saying. And there's no, if you like, there's no choice, there's no free will, the da di da di da because the you does not exist. But <laughs> remember the great mantra, I think it was in my um, first very short book, the great mantra was hopeless, helpless and meaningless. That might be an antidote to hope raising its ugly head. But the why questions are very natural for the mind, particularly the mind of the individual who feels separate. But the why questions can only ever be answered with a story. And it can, you know, it, it can never be known. In, in actuality, it can never be known. Why are my feet taking me up the hill to Hampstead to listen to a talk on non-duality this afternoon? It can never be known. But the mind wants an answer. So why am I here in this meeting listening to this? Well, maybe because I am particularly blessed, because I was I earned particularly good karma in my last life. Or maybe because I am particularly cursed by particularly bad karma in my last life. Yeah, pet take your pick. Have any story you want. Each one is as good as the uh, as the next one in the sense that they're all meaningless. 
But don't expect the mind to buy that. The mind wants its story. So the mind will go on asking why questions until it gets an answer that satisfies it. When the mind gets an answer that satisfies it, it will probably stay satisfied for somewhere between three minutes and three months. And then it'll look for another answer. Unless it's a very rigid mind, which is able to... I don't know, able to, in which case, it, it may be able to settle on, you know, one of the off-the-shelf answers, like one of the religions, and then it might be satisfied with that for the next 60 years. None of the answers to the why question have any purchase, other than as a story. Can we return, maybe temporarily, to unconditional love? What do you specifically... And what do you mean by that, or why do you mention that? Oh, help, help, help. <laughs> well, my... <laughs> um, well, I, I usually... I, my answer to that question, what I usually say is, you know, I, I don't think the word love actually needs glossing for two reasons. One is it's not the difficult word in that phrase. Um, and almost everybody, apart from, I suppose, maybe complete psychopaths, almost everybody has some handle on what the word love means, some handle, somehow. And I don't, and I think so many things have been written and said about love, and I don't feel I'm, you know, particularly articulate. Or I'm not likely to be able to add anything to what's been said by the great poets and the great spiritual thinkers and etc and so it, it so i don't think the word love is problematic but what is problematic in that phrase is the word unconditional because to the mind um to the apparent person love is always conditional um the idea of unconditional love in a sense is an affront to the mind because it's a, it's a pretty kind of harsh phrase, actually, because what that phrase means is that everything is included, everything is embraced by that, everything is included in love, in, and that includes everything that the mind most hates or most reviles or finds most distasteful to it, and the mind can't get hold of that. So the mind is going to come up with an exception and say, well, you know, what do you mean? You know, what about, and we can come up with, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it myself because it's a game, but the mind can come up with something that the mind finds um, unpleasant in the strongest possible way and say, how can love include that? Of course it doesn't. Uh, to which the answer is, yeah, that's what the word unconditional means, and that's why it's so difficult, because unconditional love includes everything, including that which I, as the mind, most hate. It's very, very challenging. It's so challenging that I am going to assert, you know, possibly wrongly, but I'm going to assert it anyway, that the mind can never get it. The mind can never get unconditional love it might think it can and it might worry away at it like a dog at a bone but after 40 years it still won't have got it what i'm going to assert is that unconditional love can simply be seen 
And it can simply be seen when the mind isn't there or when the person isn't, person isn't there. Now, when the mind hears that, if it takes that seriously, then the next thing that the mind will do is go, okay, I'm going to work on getting myself out of the way. I, the mind, am going to get the mind out of the way so I, the mind, can see unconditional love, which is, you know, complete nonsense. Although it might lie at the uh, root of, you know, some spiritual processes, but it's complete nonsense. Nevertheless, you know, the mind might collapse the sense of personhood might collapse, and then there's no need to have an argument or a discussion about this. It just becomes obvious that the nature of this is unconditional love. That's okay. very challenging. If you think of you know, what this can be like, that is very, very challenging. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's challenging or not, because when it's seen, it's seen. If it's not seen, it's irrelevant, and when it's seen, it's seen.